Thanks, Mark. This morning, everybody. Um, yeah, we kicked off this series last week. We called Engage and Encounter. Um, and this is an incredible gift that we have that, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think I'm in danger of taking for granted that God has spoken to us, that God has made himself known, that God has given us his word. Um, but it's also a challenge to us because it comes uh, in a form that, you know, requires engagement and invites us to kind of some wrestling and some thinking and some pondering and some talking and sharing um, and to do that together. And so I'm really excited about this series because it's not really about what happens for 20 or 30 minutes on a Sunday as we talk about it. But the goal of this series is that we might be encouraged, invited and maybe even challenged as to how we can engage with God's word and encounter Jesus together um, and individually throughout the week, daily, in our gospel groups, in our own lives, in our families and in our community. So Mark kicked us off last week. Um, looking at different types of literature in the Bible, so the different types of writing and how we might kind of approach a passage when we come to it, again, whether individually or as a group, what kind of questions we might ask that help us to engage well with it and that help us to encounter Jesus. And so last week we looked at Old Testament narratives, and so I hope that during the week uh, you've been reading some Old Testament stories and you've been using those um, questions that uh, Mark raised for us and that were on the handout and um, were sent out that might help us uh, engage well with those stories and make sure we're reading them well and hearing God speak through them and encountering Jesus through them. Today we come to, I, I would be honest, one of my favourite parts of the Old Testament, but I'm not sure if it's everybody else's favourite part, uh, this interesting section of the Old Testament we call the law. Uh, and before we jump into that, I have a question for you to think about in your own mind. Whatever context, whether it's here in church or just day-to-day in your life or out in our cultural, um, you know, in Australian culture, what kind of things does the word law bring to your mind? What are the kind of images that come to your mind? And I'm going to use this as a warm-up because I need to give you a heads up. There's going to be like participation today. It's not just going to be me talking. You're going to you know, actually talk with me, just so you know. Uh, so, easy question first. When you hear the word law, does, there's no wrong answer. What kind of things come to your mind? Police. Order. What's that? What was that? Rules. Legislation, what a good Road Traffic Offences Act, you know, Interpretation Interpretations Act, Act Interpretations Act, yep, legislation, it's exciting. Hearings, like courts, yep. Lawyers, such a great reputation in our society, don't they? Jail, it's interesting, isn't it? So far, kind of all the words you've given me are to do with crime, punishment, getting in trouble, rules, regulations, they're not the most positive set of images. Um, And, you know, I'm very aware of this. Some of you may not know. That's what I studied at uni. I studied law. uh, And so I've heard all the lawyer jokes. And I still have on my shelf, you know, a copy of the Australian Constitution and a copy of the Summary Offences Act and a copy of the Australian Corporations corporations Law. And nobody ever asked to borrow them. (laughs) And if I'm honest, I don't tend to pick them up for some good bedtime reading. (laughs) So the set of images we have to do with law are fairly negative. They're often to do with kind of getting in trouble and punishment or they're seen as quite boring and technical. Uh, And even interestingly, if you think about images of law when we think about the church and maybe what you've heard or what you've read or understood from what uh, the New Testament has to say, sometimes we have a set of images about law as old, belonging to the Old Testament, no longer relevant, boring, 
disconnected from us. Maybe the opposite of grace. It's about earning your way. It's about, you know, doing the right thing so you can tick the boxes so that God will be happy with you. Those kinds of images of law. And so we have this problem that when we come to talk about the law of the Old Testament, we're not starting from a neutral place. We're starting with all this baggage in our minds just because of that word from our own cultural context, from perhaps what we've heard about the Bible, certainly from um, what we might have experienced in other places. So I want to do something today that hopefully will help switch off some of those images and allow us to have a little bit of a fresh start. And that's, we're not going to talk about law. We're going to talk about Torah. Now, Torah is the Old Testament word that often gets translated in English as law, okay? But it's not a great translation of the word Torah. Because Torah to the people of God in the Old Testament meant something very different to the kind of images that come to mind when we say law. Because they would use it for bedtime reading. And they would write love poems about it. And they would take delight in it. And they would saw it as a gift and a grace that God had given them. And they were actually kind of really felt sorry for everybody else who didn't have this incredible gift that they had been given. And so when we come to the Torah, it's helpful to try and put ourselves in their shoes, which is always good when we're reading the Bible, to try and understand it in context, and let go of some of the baggage that we might have. There's this great verse in the Psalms, which captures a little bit of this, where the psalmist says the Torah, the NLT translates as the instruction, but the Torah of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. That's the kind of image we should have when we come to the Torah. This is a gift that God has given and it is a blessing and it can actually revive you and restore you and delight you and draw you in to goodness and beauty and wonder. See, Torah is so much more than a bunch of rules. In fact, it's not even a bunch of rules at all. The Torah of the Old Testament um, in in the Hebrew thinking is the first five books of the Old Testament. And if you read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, yes, there are absolutely some commands, some instructions to the people of God. But they are embedded within the story. They're embedded within the history. Even the book of Leviticus, which some people find the most difficult and, let's be honest, the most boring book of the Torah, is part of the narrative of God appearing visibly and audibly to his people in wonder and power and majesty, then hearing his voice and responding. It flows straight on from the book of Exodus. It's part of the story of God making himself known. So it's embedded and grounded in this reality of encountering the majesty of God in the story and history of God's people and of God speaking and making himself known. And so if we can start to think about Torah as this incredible gift and grace and blessing that was delighted in and longed for and treasured, then maybe we will find it a little bit easier uh, to engage with and to encounter Jesus through. So what I want to do this morning, there's lots of ways we could look at this. I've got four kind of key ways or key questions that we can ask when it comes to Torah that might help us to engage with it. So I'm going to talk us through what those four things are and then we're going to have a go at looking at a particular passage from the Torah together and use those four questions uh, to see what that might lead us to. So four questions that you kind of take away, hopefully, and find useful if when you're reading, when you're um, studying, when you're in a gospel group, when you're doing devotions, and you come to a passage of the Torah of the Old Testament. The first thing is this. The Torah reflects God's character. The Torah reflects God's character. It is not an arbitrary set of rules and regulations. It's not a burdensome kind of 
checkbox list of things that you have to do to earn your way to God. It is actually a reflection of the very nature and heart of the God who has made himself known and revealed himself to his people. Now, I often say when I'm teaching the Old Testament that the best question you can ever ask when you're reading the Old Testament is my number one tip, the best question. Many of you have heard me say this before. The best question to ask when you're reading the Old Testament is this one. What does this tell me about the kind of God that God is? What does this tell me about the kind of God that God is? Because the Bible is God revealing himself to us. And so whenever we can ask, what does this tell me about what God is like? What are these narratives, these stories of the Old Testament? What are these laws of the Torah? What are the prophets? What are the poems? Reveal to me about the nature of God. There is no end to answering that question. I'm going to spend the rest of my life answering, asking that question and coming up with answers and I won't get close to fully comprehending the fullness of the majesty and beauty and wonder and holiness of the character of God. So Torah is a reflection of God's character. And so if you think about maybe one of the most famous parts of the Torah, the Ten Commandments, which does come across as a list of rules, but actually starts with, I am the Lord your God. That's the first commandment. I am the Lord your God. Everything else flows from that. But then God says to his people things like, don't lie. Well, what does that tell me about the kind of God that God is if he asks his people not to lie? He tells me that God is a God who doesn't lie. That God is a God of truth. When the Ten Commandments say, do not murder, what does that tell me about the kind of God that God is? I think it's, it says that God is a God who values life, who created all life and who honours all life. When the Ten Commandments say, do not commit adultery, what does that tell me about the kind of God that God is? It tells me that God is faithful, that he always keeps his promises and his commitments and the, the invitations for us to reflect that. The Torah is a reflection of, the God's of God's character. This is summed up, I think, the best in one little verse in Leviticus. And so a lot of people struggle to read Leviticus. And yes, I've got my hand up. The first 10 chapters are heavy going. But there's some gems in Leviticus. Jesus draws on Leviticus uh, almost more than any other book, with the exception of Deuteronomy and Isaiah, in his teaching. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, simply says this, You must be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. The whole basis of Torah is this is who God is and we are invited to be like him, to reflect him, to image him, to reveal him, to respond to him in kind. The Torah is a reflection of God's character. And, of course, for us as Christians, as we read the Torah and we ask this question, what does this tell me about what God is like, we encounter Jesus because Jesus is God in the flesh. What kind of God is God? What is God like? You look at Jesus and you see God fulfilled and revealed once and for all. And so if Jesus, as the New Testament writers would say, is the image of the invisible God, reveals to us the fullness of what God is, then the Torah points to Jesus. And everything we see in the Torah about the kind of God God is, is seen in the person and nature of Jesus. And that's what people were so amazed about Jesus as he walked among them that he lived out and embodied Torah, that he was compassionate, that he was faithful, that he was truth, that he was walking on all the ways that had been invited and called and, and offered to God's people through the Torah. He lived it out. There's also lots of things about Jesus that maybe surprised people, but you can also see back in the Torah. 
that even though Jesus is God in the flesh, he comes humbly and he comes to serve and not to be served. And that's all in the Torah, this invitation to see a God who does not sort of take his power and majesty and lord it over his people, but who humbles himself and invites them into a relationship with him that they might reflect what he is like. So that's simply our first kind of key thing to ask about the Torah. How does this reflect God's character? If Torah reflects God's character, when we engage with Torah and encounter Jesus through through reflecting on the nature of who God is. Second one, Torah also invites us to live as God's community. That might seem like a really obvious point. That's actually kind of how law works in our society as well. As much as we think negatively of the law, imagine if we didn't have it. Like imagine if there was no speed limits on the road. might be fun for a while if you're on your own, but if everybody else is just doing whatever they want on the road, it's going to be a disaster. The reason we need the law is because we want to live as a community. Me in isolation? Sure. I just don't need any rules. I'll just make it up. Us living in community, even that has some problems, but <laughs> leaving that aside for a minute, us in community, how do we live together as a, a family, as a society, as a church? We need some kind of instruction, some kind of invitation, some kind of agreed way of being that will enable us to be a community. And so the Torah was this gift that God gave to his people and said, you'll be my people, and so this is what it will look like. This is what community looks like. This is what the people of God look like. The Torah is what enabled them to live together. And there's a reason why, even today, the Australian legal system reflects so much of the Old Testament Torah through the English system, you know, through our history uh, for many years. But so much of what the Torah is about it's kind of so obvious to us. Like, you know, don't kill each other, right? just seems like such an obvious thing to say. How do we live as a society if it's a free-for-all and you can just kill anyone whenever you want? How do we live as a society when you can just kind of like, you know, make up how much things are worth and, and you know, decide that, uh, you know, rip other people off and, and use cheat people and oppress people and use, you know, unjust scales as the Old Testament phrase would be. You know, we actually have all these kind of systems and structures built into our society that are drawn from the Torah. And so it might seem kind of really obvious to us and we tend to think of the negative impact of that. But the gift and the blessing it is that it enables us to live as a community in our society today. I'm sure in your family you have some kind of sense of rules might not use that word, by which your family lives. The agreed kind of commitments that you've made to each other, this is, this is how we're going to do this. This is how we're going to live in the same house together and get along. And Torah is a gift that enables us to live in community. So again, if you go to Leviticus chapter 19, there are these great verses that talk about being a neighbour. And that's really about being in community, living in the same place as someone else, <laughs> being a neighbour. And so the writer of Leviticus says things like, do not do anything that endangers your neighbour's life. That's a pretty good idea. Rebuke your neighbour frankly so you will not share in his guilt. This would be a robustness to this relationship we have. But do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone amongst your people. Get this, love your neighbour as yourself. You might have heard that before. Jesus uses it as a one way of kind of summing up some of the commands of the law. He's drawing on the book of Leviticus there. This invitation to see ourselves not as isolated individuals who just have the right to do whatever we want, but as people who desire to live in relationship as a community and therefore make commitments to one another 
about the kind of ways that we will live. That's what Torah is about. It invites us to live as God's community. And so that's a question we can ask when we want to read the Torah and try and understand it, engage with us. How does this help us to live as a community? And again, of course, for us, this side of the coming of God in the flesh in Jesus, we experience that same community in Jesus' kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus proclaims and announces and brings in his very person is the kingdom that was you know, kind of given foundation and formation as a community in the Torah. It's lived out in a new way in Jesus, but it's the same invitation to community. It's not an individual pursuit. It's about living together. God's goal is to create for himself a people, not a bunch of individuals, but a community who might not just be in relationship with him, but be in relationship with one another. Okay, so Torah reflects God's character, tells us something about what God is like. It invites us to community. It gives us a sense of how we can live together well. Thirdly, living out the Torah becomes a witness to the world of God's good purposes. The Torah had a missionary purpose, the Old Testament says. There's a sense in which as Israel, the people of God, lived out the Torah, everybody else around them was meant to see something in them. The first thing they'd see is the reflection of the character of God. Say, wow, look at how they love one another. Look at how they are fair to one another. Look at how they tell the truth to one another. Look at how they're faithful to one another. People are actually observing the very character of God through the community life of his people. But the other element of this that is probably one of the trickiest parts of the Torah, and I think, you know, if you get this, may unlock some of the more obscure and difficult passages of the Torah. In order to do that, in order to be a witness to the world of God's purposes, God's people had to be different. The word the Old Testament uses is holy, set apart, noticeably different. There's a sense in which God called Israel on purpose to be a bit weird. So the other nations would look at them and go, what is going on over there? Why don't they do the things that we all do? Why do they do those things that none of us have ever thought of? They were meant to be set apart, holy, different. So important to understanding the Torah. Now, this becomes very oops. Okay. This becomes very contextual, right? So if Israel needs to look different to the other nations, some of the things become very specific about what the other nations are like. So there's some kind of fairly obscure laws in the Torah that say things about uh, you know, not making markings on your body. Uh, or not boiling a baby goat in its mother's milk. And you're like, what is going on there? And sometimes the answer is, well, this is how they were to be different from the nations around them. This is the kind of practices that were going on that everyone else was doing, and they were to be deliberately set apart, different, holy. They were to not grow two kinds of crops together or not wear mixed fabric in their clothing. It seems a little bit odd. Yes, God has invited them to be set apart, to be different, so that others might see him at work in and through them as a community. I think the best passage for me that sums this up is actually found in Exodus 19, just before the giving of the Ten Commandments, when God is speaking to the people, uh, this voice from heaven, and he's kind of explaining why he's giving them the commandments. And he says, now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth, for the, all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. And these these kind of phrases of a special treasure uh, from among the peoples of the earth, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, 
They're all about mission. They're all about purpose. They're all about being different and showing to the world something of what God is like and what it looks like to live as his people. And Jesus calls us to that same mission. You know, uh, Michael Frost, uh, a Sydney Baptist author and uh, speaker, uh, he has a book where he, he uses this phrase, which I love, where he says that we should live, the church today should be living questionable lives. Questionable in the sense that they should provoke questions. We should be a little bit different. We should be seen as a little bit weird, a little bit odd, because that's the calling of the church, to live in a different way that provokes questions. Why, why do they do that? Why are they generous? Does anyone ever ask you, like, like, why do you give money to the church? What a strange thing to do. Why do you go to church on a Sunday? Why do you sing songs? <laughs> like many of the things that we do as a community should provoke questions from other people because that gives us the opportunity to answer with our words but also with our lives to say, well, because this is what we believe it means to know God and to be his family and to be in relationship with one another. There's a missionary purpose to what we are called to. So better move on. So we've got reflection of God's character, an invitation to live as community, a mission to the world to show a different way. And then finally, I think another way of thinking about the Torah is that the Torah is a promise. The Torah is a promise of a restored future. There's a sense built into the Old Testament Torah that the people of God knew that they were not going to be able to live this out fully. It is a mistake to think that the Old Testament Israelites believed they could earn their way to God if they kept the Torah. That's something that comes much later and it's a particular group of people around in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, who seem to be heading in that direction. But even then, I'm not sure that they fully believed they could earn their way to God. The Israelites were God's chosen people. God had rescued them and saved them and brought them out of slavery in Egypt. The law was not given for them to earn their way to God and they knew they never could. But it was given to them to give them a picture, a promise, a hope of what it could be like to live in right relationship with God and right relationship with one another. This is where I think the role of imagination needs to come in. And again, I'll tell you, when I was at law school, nobody ever talked about using your imagination. (laughs) But when it comes to Torah, one of the greatest gifts God has given us is our imagination. Uh, Walter Brueggemann has a lot to say about this idea of imagination in reading the Torah and, and the prophets. That the Torah is meant to spark pictures in your mind of how good it could be. So again, if you go back to the Ten Commandments, it's my easiest example, and you imagine a world where nobody lied to anybody, where everybody kept the promises that they've made, that nobody coveted and wanted what someone else had but was content with what they had, where everyone was truthful and faithful and joyful and and in right relationship with God and right relationship with one Like, who wouldn't want to live in that community? It's meant to paint a picture. It was like, wow, how good would that be? And Israel is meant to kind of live towards that picture. It's a hopeful, forward-looking, inspiring kind of thing. And for me, this is such a switch in how we've been often trained, maybe unconsciously or subconsciously, to think about law. We think about law as heavy and burdensome. The Torah is meant to be inspiring and hopeful. This is not about God coming along with a big stick and saying, you better do this or else. It's not God inviting them to enter into something amazing and beautiful and wonderful and to anticipate what he might be able to bring about. And, of course, this finds its fulfilment again in Jesus, that Jesus says when he comes back, when he returns and all things are renewed and the heavens and the earth are renewed once and for all, 
And we will actually live in that restored future that the Torah has been trying to point us to for thousands of years. That God's people have been invited to kind of work towards and live forward towards and be inspired by will become our reality forever and ever. We look forward to this in the completion, in fullness when Jesus returns. That's what our hope is. That's what we long for. That's what we desire. And it's what Torah invites us to consider, to picture, to imagine, and to maybe even live out. Because as that, I think, Brighamman quote that we have up most weeks on our screen says, you know, when we imagine what it could be, we then live into that imagination and we start to see it breaking to our reality. So I talk about this all day. I know I'm in danger. I, I did spend all day Saturday last week talking about uh, this, so I will not bore you too much longer. But those are four kind of key ideas and key questions that I think can really help us engage with the Torah. How does it reflect God's character? How does it invite us to live as community? How does it uh, model and, and um, demonstrate to the world a different way of being? And how does it give us a promise and imagination of a once and for all different future? So what we're going to finish today by doing is actually looking at a passage from the Torah. I've picked a kind of easy one because I didn't want to make it you know, too hard for us. And we're going to read it. And then I'm going to ask you those four questions. And so you're going to give me the conclusion of my sermon today. Got it? So if you've got a Bible, you might want to grab one out, whether it's on your phone or paper. So you've got it in front of you, you can look at it. I will read it so you can listen as well. But we're going to read Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. And I'm going to ask you what you see in this passage that might respond to those four questions about Torah. So let me read from Deuteronomy 15, verse 1. This is part of, you know, a whole a bunch of commands, particularly about how they live in the land that God is giving them. God says, at the end of every seventh year, you must cancel your debts. This is how it must be done. Creditors must cancel the loans they have made to their fellow Israelites. They must not demand payment from their neighbours or relatives for the Lord's time of release or jubilee has arrived. This release from debt, however, applies only to your fellow Israelites, not to the foreigners living among you. There should be no poor among you, for the Lord your God will greatly bless you in the land he is giving you as a special possession. You'll receive this blessing if you carefully obey the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today. The Lord your God will bless you as he has promised. You will lend money to many nations but will never need to borrow. You will rule over many nations but they will not rule over you. But if there are any poor people in your towns when you arrive in the land the Lord is God, your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. Do not be mean-spirited and refuse someone alone because the year of release is close at hand. If you refuse to make the loan and the needy person cries out to the Lord, you'll be considered guilty of sin. Give freely without begrudging it, and the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some among you who are poor. That is why I am commanding you to share your resources freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. So these are a set of commands kind of about how you're meant to live economically towards one another, uh, particularly written to the people of God in a, in a particular context, and yet God's word to us today as part of his Torah. So let me ask you, from what I've read, from having a look at it yourself, from what stood out to you, what do you think in that passage tells us something about the kind of God God is? What kind of God would you say God must be to give these commands in his Torah? Give me some words or phrases. What? So, cares for the poor, a God who cares for the poor, who's not just on the side of the rich and the mighty. Yeah, that's great. Perfect. Yeah. What was someone on? 
generous, a generous God. Yeah, I mean, if God's asking us to be generous, it kind of suggests that he is generous. And, you know, I'm guessing most of us know from other parts of the biblical story, God's fairly generous, gave us his son and all that. Compassionate, yeah. Fulfills his promises, nice. Gracious, excellent. Anything else? Forgiving, sorry. Redemptive, nice. Yeah, that whole year of Jubilee kind of idea of redemption. Anything maybe more surprising or unexpected? Okay, yeah, nice. I've, I'm trying somewhat ways. I hear you say, I think you say, you know, this idea of almost like shared ownership, like everything belongs to everyone. It's not kind of, yeah, not a God who holds what he has to himself. Yeah. Which he kind of would have every right to. Yeah, there's something really interesting in this passage, isn't there, what I was saying before, like there's a real recognition that it isn't perfect. And even the Torah is not suddenly just going to wave a, wave a magic wand. There's going to be ongoing challenge to living as this. There's a God who kind of recognises reality. I would say a God, what's that talking about, the kind of God who God is. He's not a God who just kind of sweeps in and like, you know, has his way and forces us to, you know, he, he kind of lets mess exist and he lets people make choices that are unhelpful to each other and then he invites his people to kind of respond and interact with that. That's, that's my best summary of the kind of God that he is. Yeah, he, he doesn't just go, no, no, we're doing away with all that and you'll do it my way. He doesn't force himself. He kind of invites us into the messiness. Anything else? Sorry? Merciful. Nice. That's pretty good. It's a pretty good list, right? Huh? Okay, that's just the first question. What kind of God God is? What about the second question? What invitation to life as a community do you see here? How is this inviting us to live together? What does it look like to be community in response to this? This might be a bit more challenging to live out. <laughs> might be easy to name. What do you see? Yeah, to be generous with each other. Like to give when someone asks you for something. That's always challenging. Yeah. Yeah, give without expectation of respect. So it's really not a like reciprocal tit for tat, you know, just just do what you expect from someone else. It's very much more than that. Yeah. <coughs> Unconditional love, yeah. It's not based on what someone else can do for you. Yeah, it invites you to notice everyone I like that. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, noticing the poor and there's mention of the foreigner and there's people, like, who might be coming to the end of the time of debts and, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's a, yeah, there's a sense in which we're all in this together and what does it look like, you know, not just for you but for all those other people. It's great. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that links a little bit to the mission one as well. But, yeah, this is, there is this sense of, okay, you're, you're in community. You've made a commitment to each other. What does that look like? And it is different um, to how you live towards outsiders. There's, I think there's parallels in terms of the character of God. But, yeah, there is a difference in practice. There's some pretty radical stuff in this passage. Have you actually imagined a society today trying to live this out? What, what, what is it saying? Yeah, 
other thoughts? Yeah. Yes, there's a sense of kind of a community that trusts God that even though they're doing things that might seem like they're going to have a negative, you know, like giving everything away, but what will we have left? Trust God. Trust that God will bless you. That's that's quite a radical thing to do, to actually trust that you don't have to hang on to it. There's a number of phrases in there that actually are negative. uh, That says like, don't be tight-fisted. Don't be begrudging. That's really challenging. What does it look like to live in community where we're not begrudging towards other people? We're not thinking, I'll do it, but, you know, only because I have to, only because God says it's the right thing to do. Or to be tight-fisted, to hold on closely to what we have. And that's a massive challenge in our cultural context. Anything else? That's pretty good. Okay, what about the third question? I think some of these are related. It's kind of almost the flip side of that. So there's what we're invited to look like as community. How would this witness to the world a different way? What do you see in here that could be a witness, that could be a, you know, a, um, a revelation or a mission of God's purpose made known to others? Yeah, absolutely. The relief of suffering. I mean, that's... If you look through Christian history, right, it's, it's the church that's taken this seriously that has been an incredible witness. One of the, the most powerful ways the church has been a witness to the world throughout history is by the way that it cared for the poor. You know, so people like Mother Teresa come to mind, but, you know, these are kind of famous examples where people go, hey, that's, wow, what, why are they doing that? Why are they giving up their life to care for those people? That's good. Yes, it is very different, isn't it? So Mark was saying the idea that it starts again every seven years, so different to our society, which I mean, almost essentially says like generationally, like you're responsible for the debts of your parents and, you know, <laughs> like loans that are owed, like pass on and carry on and like generational cycles of poverty. Wow, imagine somehow, and this is super radical, like how would you actually live this out when you're living in a society that kind of is structured the way ours is? But to be a community that does it differently. And that doesn't count things against people, but actually gives people a clean slate and a fresh start. It's kind of amazing. I'm not a finance expert, but I'm like, if we actually live this out, Mark, would like our whole system just break down of like mortgages and loans and interest rates and like this is it's quite challenging to think about you know, how different this is. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Some conscious people listening in can't hear what you're saying, but yeah, this this idea of compound interest, which is kind of like the whole basis for our, you know, loans and mortgages and systems, it basically becomes exponential after about 10 years and here after every seven years. It's a resetting. And the year of jubilees after every 50 years is just completely wiped out. Imagine that every 50 years, any debts that you or your family have owed for generations just gone. It's really challenging. The other thing that stood out to me in this, if I thought about being different, um, just the consumerism of our culture. Like our whole society is built on consumerism and this is not about getting what you can get for yourself. In fact, it's saying hold lightly what you have and be willing to share it and give it away. What would that look like? What kind of witness would that be to the world if the church chose to live different and not be a consumerist community, not be a greedy community? Okay, this may be the hardest question, but... 
some people are better at engaging their imaginations than others. So as you listen to that, those words, if you try and engage your imagination and picture of what it could be like, what kind of promise do you think this, what picture did this paint, what promise uh, of what things could be in the future? Anything come to mind? I set you up by telling you this is the hard question. <laughs> yes, Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. Billionaires. <laughs> yeah. So a world where there's not that massive gap between rich and poor and inequality is going to be yeah, a picture of equality, a picture where kind of everyone, yeah, that's massively challenging. A world where there aren't people who can't eat and there also aren't multi-billionaires. Is that... Yeah. Yep. Yeah, a lot, lot less tight-fisted. And I think, I mean, the picture Jesus paints is that, like, you know, in the new creation, there's no reason to be tight-fisted because God is present and everything is available. Like, why would you hang on to something when God is there and everything? It is a picture of, like, what the need to be tight-fisted is gone. Yeah. That's an incredible picture. It's quite a different hope. Yep. No. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's very, it's not individualistic, it's collectivist, what's like saying it. Like, it's almost, you read this and go, this is communism is this what it's talking about um i think there's a desire in communism that you know resonates with this i'm not saying that communism is the way but you know this this idea that we all have a kind of our own personal private ownership of things and what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours and there's a big line between that doesn't seem to be it and um, there's a there's a shared collective community thing going on something else? not less less crime yes yes they don't need to take what they need because they can get what they need. Yeah. It ends up being, I think it ends up painting a picture of justice, right? It ends up a picture of justice for all because everybody has what they need. <laughs> yeah. You want to hope absolutely less, less anxiety and mental health issues because, yeah, the things that stress us out. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully it paints a picture of something that we desire. Yep. Yeah, nice. That I love that. So no fear or shame and no anxiety. No, like no embarrassment about asking for help. But you actually don't even need to ask for help because people are giving it before you ask. Kind of idea. Yeah. This is this should be a picture that hope I hope sparks our imagination. Go, wow, wouldn't wouldn't that be great? And that's that's what Jesus is working towards. You know, we're not going to get there today. But what does it look like to start to picture that and to start to be a community that lives towards and lives into that? Thank you. Um, I really appreciate your help with that. <laughs> um, 
I hope that those are, as I said, those four questions are sort of some tools that you can use really practically to engage with the Torah and to encounter Jesus. And as I said, I feel like I picked a, it's always a fairly easy example. So some of the more obscure laws are going to be a little bit trickier. Uh, and so the passages that are in the handout for this week um, sort of progressively maybe get a little bit more challenging. Some of them are quite small passages uh, and sort of look at some topics that, um, yeah, start to get maybe a bit more challenging. But the same questions kind of work and can be applied to get us encountering uh, Jesus in the Torah and to engaging with this. So the, the Torah covers the whole of life, you know, every topic that you can think about under the sun, I think, somehow uh, the Torah will speak into. And so I just wanted to leave you with one final question, <laughs> which is simply to bring it all together. How might those four key ideas help us as a community, as Richmond, as your family, as your gospel group, uh, this week engage with the Torah and encounter Jesus together? So that's a question I'd love you to kind of reflect on, uh, ponder on, and maybe just take two minutes to turn to the person next to you and what is it from that question that might resonate and that might get you thinking about how you could do that this week. And then I'm going to invite Dalip and the team up to close out our gathering together. Have a chat to someone next to you. We keep the conversations going, but let me pray. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the invitation for us to engage with it, to, to wrestle, to ask some of the questions, to uh, look at some of the harder and um, you know more challenging parts of it and to know that it is your word that you speak to us through uh, and that we encounter you, Jesus, we meet you uh, in this revelation of God uh, in your word. So I pray that um, these kind of things we've talked about today wouldn't just be uh, like a half an hour on a Sunday thing, that we uh, as a family, as a church, as individuals this week, 
um, that you would continue to speak to us and invite us into your word, that we might encounter you in new ways and that you might invite us uh, into more of what it looks like to live as your people, to make you known uh, and to live forward towards all that is that you are seeking to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.